0: This This episode one hundred eighty-seven. I'm mean, here with eighty-three for Isaac Drum Third. Tonight's panelists are Buddy Thornton, Larry Davis, and Carl Barry. Dr. Larry Davis, please say hello again to the people, sir. Hello, and panelists, hello. I'm
1: looking forward to some gems being dropped tonight. So let's get busy. Let's not disappoint.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And Carl Berry, please say hello to the people, sir.
2: Brothers and sisters, greetings. I'm excited to be with you tonight.
0: We're excited to have you here as well. Hey, buddy, please, hello again to the people, sir.
2: I just love being on the podcast
3: with Carl and Dr. Davis. And, you know, we always light up the room, so let's get the lights burning.
0: And with that being said, we're going to go right into it. The topic for tonight is in loco parentis. When we hear this topic, Dr. Larry Davis, I got to go to you first. When you hear the topic... Like the topic we got tonight What's the first thoughts that come to your mind?
1: Well, you know, it, it, I don't think it means the same as it used to I think teachers 30 years ago really embodied that in lieu of the parent concept But I think teachers today are saying Hey, look, we're not the child's parent We need help <laughs> So I know what it used to mean And I don't think it has any meaning at all today in, in today's education With all the stress that we put on our teachers
0: Wow Powerful, powerful. You, you know, this podcast is being listened to right now in about 90 different countries and about 2,500 different cities throughout the world. And uh, we are—we just want to thank the listening audience for listening in, tuning in, and supporting this podcast. I want to go next to Buddy Thornton. What was the first thoughts that came to your mind when you got to, uh, this topic for tonight in local Apprentice?
3: Well, in the legal world, they have people who are called guardian ad litems. And a guardian ad litem is a legally attached person who is the connection between the courts and the children to protect the children against all kinds of situations, including parents or teachers or anybody else. The uh, In local parentis is really a situation where when there is not a parent in the room or in the environment, the uh, responsible adult who is over that environment is supposed to act in their stead. And I agree with Dr. Larry Davis. I don't believe that people understand the, the boundaries between the teachers and the parents and the fact that in reality, the teachers work at the behest of the state and the parents to educate the children and provide a learning environment. Parents are ultimately responsible for every part of the child's education and that is lost in today's world. But some some parents demand that they want full control and other parents say, I have no clue how to educate, so I'm gonna leave it entirely in the hands of the teachers. So the teachers get pulled like saltwater taffy in every direction, and that's that we'll leave it at that for now.
0: Thank
1: you. Hey for- Isaiah, let, let
3: me say something.
1: Let me say something for the people in Texas. That term in Texas is ad litem. So, <laughs> you know, we, we say things a little different in Texas. So Buddy said it one way, but in Texas, if you go to the family courts, it's going to be referred to as ad litem. So just so you know that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that, Dr. Larry Davis. And with that being said, Mr. Carberry, same question. When you got this topic for tonight, what does that mean to you in local apprentice?
2: Well, I thought about two things. One, uh, I did a program for 8,000 employees in the state of Texas dealing with foster care and adoption. And the responsibility factor, the care and the interest and the concern for the children was secondary and almost uh, non-existent and even the system itself suffered some troubles. And so, you know, I'm looking at people that did have some legal responsibility, but that legality really was tied to a paycheck. And then I look at the second part of that, as we've become a television society, and even more so when COVID came along, and we had stay-at-home program calls, and you look at all of the single uh parents out there, some of which were first responders, what did that first responder single mother bring home to her three kids when she left the hospital for two 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 years? Don't sound like a long time, but if you think about the trauma and the mental health impact, it was huge. So Uh, It's a very, very Apropos topic
0: Thank you for that, sir And I want to open up the panel The panel is open And I want to throw some things out there What I heard all you gentlemen talk about tonight Was first those mindsets Mindsets have begun to Maybe deteriorate, maybe change And is it affecting The education system in the United States Are we falling behind globally now Because of that are we, are we still making the learning environment safe? Are we teaching children how to make safe choices? And our, our teachers and our administrators and our school staff paraprofessionals, are they, are they still building those connections with the youth like they did back in the day? The panel's open. Who wants to take that first?
2: Well, I'll jump in there and, and I'll go way back, buddy. Uh, to the days when I was in school. Uh, Because one of the things about safe education they talk about is the importance of a regular morning meeting. And we used to pledge allegiance and sing America the Beautiful and all of that kind of stuff. Um, And and now uh, the kids come in the classroom and they are chastised into going to their seats and getting started on something without even have a gathering point. And then to add interest, insult to that, it's the lack of, uh, developing a culture representation, because we're so keen on trying to pretend like there's not any disparities that we are not, uh, really dealing with our children and their, their cultures and cultures is not just skin color or language. But, you know, their socioeconomic status and, and, and the, the, where they're living with uh, their sister or their grandmother or uh, their older brother. So there's a lot of differences now that we we don't see that has changed over the last decade, group of decades. And I think it's very important that we need to look and see who those students really are.
0: Oh, we're talking about awareness. I right.
3: have to jump in there, too.
0: Go ahead, please. I have to it.
3: jump in there, too, because, uh, uh, Carl, I come from that era as well, because every time we went to school, the very first thing we did was we all stood and said the Pledge of Allegiance, and we sometimes we sang the America the Beautiful, sometimes we sang the Star Spangled Banner. It really depended on the mood of the moment and the teacher in the classroom. But there was a sense of community and communal activity, but the difference also back then was if a student was not performing up to par, they weren't held in a position of just being thrown at the back of the room and allowed to just veg while the other students participated. The students themselves actually worked with each other in, because we were community-minded. We, I knew every parent on my block. I knew what houses I could go to and I felt like I needed a safe environment. That has completely disappeared over the last thirty, thirty-five 35 years and especially today. I can ask 80% of an audience if they even know the name of the kids in the house next to them and they don't may not even know the name of their neighbors. So it's more a community thing than a school thing, but it certainly impacts the school at an incredible level because if the teachers are the only thing holding together the environment in the classroom and there's no sense of community, where are the kids getting their role modeling and where are they getting any sense of belonging? That's the question.
1: All right, drones. Here, here I go. I'm, I'm going to try to. I told you I'm going to try to be a little better today than I was last time. So, Buddy talked about the sense of community. I grew up, and I'm sure everyone else did. We grew up in a time when there was no such thing as fences. Very few homes had fences around their yard, and people did cookouts in the front of the yard. Somewhere along the way, we put fences around our yard. And we took that barbecue and we put it in the backyard to get away from my neighbors. And then all of a sudden we had these chain link fences that everybody had that wasn't good enough. We had to do picket fences, these big six foot, eight foot privacy fences because we didn't want our neighbors looking over. Everybody on my block, every adult on my block growing up knew every kid. And it wasn't abnormal for one of those parents to bring you to your mom and your dad. When you look at that. you look at that community when you look at how that community connected revolved around each other uh socialized with each other had that relationship with each other that manifested itself into their classroom but also growing up a teacher a police officer and a minister were the three most important people in our community well the teachers don't live in our school districts don't live in our community where they teach anymore the police aren't from the community where they police anymore and the minister has a nice home on the other side of town and just only drives in to preach on Sunday and do Wednesday book study. I mean, Bible study. So when you look at the, the when you want to create a system that destroys society, what do you start? You start with the family, you break the family down, you break, you, you take the dad out of the home, you separate mom from the child and make the child grow up with the grandparents who are now out of touch with what's going on in, in the world and in society. So all these things have
0: impacted our schools, but they start like Buddy said in the home. In local parentis, Latin for "in the place of a parent," is a legal doctrine under which individual assumes parental rights, duties, and obligations without going through the formalities of legal adoption. Of nearly four million children in the United States, only sixteen percent live in families while the other percent live below the federal poverty level and are headed by, unfortunately, a single parent. In most cases, that's a mother, single mother. 20% of children over 4.7 million are affected by many risk factors because of this and because of what the panelists have just shared tonight. Parents serve as the first teachers of their children during those early stages of development. But now teachers are drastically sharing those roles while students are enrolled in their, stu- their their campuses, their schools. There are 3.5 million full and part-time public school teachers and around half a million private school teachers. Most teachers are women, especially in elementary schools. And so women make up about 76% of all teachers at public schools and private schools and even in larger school districts I want to go around the panel real quick based off statistics that I just read are are they accurate are they off are they off skewed what are your thoughts who wants to go first
3: I'll step in there but I'm not in the school environment every day like you are or like Dr. Larry is but the thing it, that is very apparent when you deal with any of the teacher associations especially here in Arizona is that Uh, easily 80 percent of the uh, teachers who are actually boots in the classroom are women and because of the exodus of a lot of people who have been disenfranchised by the system itself a lot of the people who are in those classrooms are not certified teachers they are actually acting as pseudo teachers because they've been brought in either retired experts have picked up the mantle and have been brought in and can get paid to be a teacher but we've had a watering down effect where people are struggling to even understand how to teach the kids much less understand some of the overarching responsibilities like in local parenthesis
0: and i'm glad i'm glad you mentioned that buddy because 57.6 percent of black children 31.2% of Hispanic children and 20.7% of white children are, watch this, are living absent of their biological fathers in those homes and so these are the children that are going to to our schools and so the things that schools are doing they're developing programs they're developing activity programs they're developing alternative education programs they are uh, developing dap programs and but but we always Have those, you know, those advanced programs as well for those kids. We have those international baccalaureate programs, those gifted and talented programs, and so we have a lot of things in the mix. But what's what's needed, what's necessary, is more character education programs so that we can present those role models. I want to ask this one question before we go into the questions uh, for the panelists. How important is it? How important is role modeling for our young people as they develop through the stages of development? How important is it for them to have for them to know the difference between a positive role model and a negative role model? The panel is open. Who wants to take that first? I'll,
1: I'll let me Dr. try. Doctor go ahead. No, 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 Miss Barry, go ahead. I, I can listen.
2: I want to listen. I'm always willing to learn. I, I'll, I'll, actually, I learned from you. I'm just uh, co signing what you already said.
0: You both great. Uh, You're both great.
2: The the people uh that you mentioned, the preacher and the uh, police officer and all of these other uh people back uh in the day were uh they were role models. Uh, but I've got one thing to say, and that is nineteen sixty. Because if you look at 1960, you're looking at a pivotal point in families and education. Uh, Because we were looking at all of the changes and all of the uh, racial strife and all of the problems. And the people that were in charge did some things to fool everybody. They made them think we were trying to make it better. But what they were doing was trying to build those fences and put the barbecue pit in the backyard. Because now what we're dealing with is silos. What we're dealing with is, uh, the parents are not the first teacher The television is and Stalin said it best. Uh, he who controls the, the, the uh, media controls the mind. And so we have gone from, uh, care and love that's a real unheard of word today we've gone from care or love to uh subliminal imagery and all we're doing now is trying to control minds and make sure that the uh, the uh, money is still in uh, the right places and headed in the right direction more for me and less for for them so let me add to this so he
1: talked about the fences and, I want, and the silos, and I want to put this in perspective. You can't have a community if every entity in the community is functioning by itself, in itself, in autonomy, right? They have to be functioning in unison. An organism is, works best when each component of the organism works, works independently, but together to make it work. But when you separate the homes from each other, the families from each other within the community you are now destroying the organism. It doesn't have the ability to grow and mutate. It doesn't have the ability to change. It will ultimately die. And that's, this is what you're seeing. When you look at the 1800s, we had these one-room these one schools, right? These one-room schools where everybody was housed and you could see the, the, the influence of money based on how they dressed and how often they came to school. Well, let's look at today. We have these mega schools, but they're comprised of hundreds of one-building schools because teachers in the schools, even though they have planning periods, don't plan together. And back to what you said earlier about the number of female teachers versus male teachers, if we look at the dynamic of a district, for every four elementaries, you have two middle schools. For every two middle schools, you have a high school we know that our elementary system is primarily made up of women and that's why you have that big disparity that big number and that you know discrepancy so in a school district like disd uh, disd has uh, 11 or 12 high schools but they have about 60 elementary schools or 70 elementary schools and those elementary schools are made primarily up of female teachers that's why you see that big discrepancy in percentage of women teachers over male teachers But we also have to do better at recruiting male teachers, especially male
2: teachers of color. Well, it used to be that um, teachers were dedicated. You know, you talked about people to look up to. These people were doing it not because of anything other than they wanted to contribute to the future, to our children. Uh, But now, a lot of teachers are just people that can't find a good job. And so they teach. And the interest is that not to help the children, it's to find something to do during the day uh, to add to the income of their evening job.
0: And, and see, that's interesting what I'm hearing because what I'm, I just wanna make sure I'm processing this correctly. What I'm hearing is the way that classical education educated our young people it gave them the ability to process and understand reality, whereas the progressive way, this, this new way, is making reality fuzzy. And, and please correct me if I'm
2: wrong.
1: I, I, Mr. John, let me tell you this. The classical education system was not created to educate minorities. It was not created to educate families from impoverished areas. The classical system is predicated on educating the influential Bostonian, the New England. It wasn't predicated on teaching poor African-Americans or Hispanics in the South. So the classical system, people like to talk about it. We need to bring the classical system back. Let me tell you, no, we don't. We need to bring a better system. We need to create a better system. I'm not saying uh, what we're doing today is, is working, but what I'm telling you is what we did yesterday didn't work. For our minority children we have to do better we need to tear this whole system down and rebuild
0: it we got to talk about this what are your thoughts depending
1: on
2: buddy
1: said buddy said something a couple of weeks ago and I, you know buddy say so much good stuff but he used the word assimilation right our schools are trying to get children to assimilate and that's the problem because let me ask you this: three three plus six is nine, and four plus five is nine. They're both got to the same point, but in different ways. Our schools will not allow our children to get to the destination taking different routes, and that's the problem. And we take those different routes to celebrate our different cultures.
3: Let me uh, let that's me interject there because now that you open that door, I want to I want to go through that door. <clears throat> Starting in 2015, I published. 70 articles, seven zero articles about the evil and the destructiveness of assimilation and acculturation. The only way we benefit society is to go above those two concepts to a concept called social amalgamation where you take the absolute best from every culture wherever it stands within the collective and you make the best stand up and shine and it's accepted by all everybody equally you can't use assimilation because you can't assimilate where you are not a carbon copy of your neighbor and i've heard you say that a hundred times larry it's just you we have not got standardized families children or people how can we have assimilation assimilation is a false narrative but the other part of that is that when you start to look for social amalgamation You have to destroy the silo effect. Somebody has to stand up and say, as long as you feel like you have to have a in-group versus an out-group mentality, and you are willing to defend that to your death, we will have silos and the silos prevent social amalgamation. I've seen it in all kinds of neighborhoods. The only neighborhoods that stand above that are exactly what you described. The ultra affluent, and the almost ultra affluent neighborhoods can stand above that because they're not in a silo. They're on the ceiling above the silo. And that is the problem.
2: Our classrooms need to be more of a judgment free zone. The kids are judging each other's. They don't accept each other as classmates. And therefore They don't get to know each other. And the acculturation process is we're all one as long as you are like me. And I will even censor your uh, perspective in order to make sure that you learn to think the right way because I represent the right way to think.
0: See you and you guys are pulling me to a totally different direction. Let me the panel slow open. and let me ask this question right here for the panel. So how how do we take those silos and show our teachers how to be empathetic for those students that's in those silos. And not just the students, we have teachers that's in those silos too. We even have administrators that's also in those silos. How do we do it? How do we make it work? How do we how do we think ourselves clear? Any thoughts?
1: Well, you know, first of all, well, those silos are the reason we have such a high turnover rate in education. Teachers don't feel like they belong in those schools. And again, let's put this in perspective. People don't leave organizations, they leave other people. So it's up to the leader of that campus to make sure that that relationship building process is taking place. It's not about onboarding, right? Because once you onboard, They leave you to your own devices. No, it's about taking care of people, building genuine relationships with people. People follow people who they trust. People follow people and stay with people they believe in. Again, if you're out walking around and you think you're leading and you turn around and look and there's nobody behind you, you were just taking a walk. We have to build genuine relationships from the classroom to the building to central office and throughout the whole education community
0: beautiful beautiful who's next beautiful
3: yeah the 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 other part of that is that what we like to call the Kmart mentality you are asking people and i think uh, carl said it best when he said we have people who are are defaulting to teaching because they don't have other paths to affluence or other paths to meeting their needs so they default to the teaching which creates this false mentality of it's, it's a Kmart uh, marketplace. We're willing to pay the absolute minimum we can to keep people in front of our children. And it would be like trying to put them in on the moon, but sending them up in a tinker toy rocket. You can't do that. It's a very false narrative. We have to find a way to make teachers and the teaching profession be one of the pinnacle professions. And it has not happened in this country, at least. And I know for uh, for certain that if we flip the narrative on the politicians, the legislators, and at the, uh, the state level, and the the con- con- congressional people at the national level, if we flip the narrative and said your children must go to a public school you would see a dramatic shift in funding for public schools because those people would never want their children to be taught in a Kmart environment. And that is the problem that we face over and over and over again. It's always about the almighty dollar. And as long as the dollar doesn't have to go where the dollar isn't, we're gonna have a huge disparity and we're gonna have silos
0: okay this is the last question that that was beautiful this is the last question and then we're going to close we're going to close this up uh, this panel up and start asking some pinpointed questions to the panelists so last question what then based off what I just heard now what is the role of teachers in preparing future generations what's their role
2: well I, I, I I, go ahead, Mr. Mayor. Well, I'm just going to go back to old school again. Because I go to in these schools now, and there's something that I don't see. I don't see teeth. There's not as much smiling going on inside the school as there used to be. Now, back in the day, we used to take recess twice a day. Teacher got a break, the kids had fun. So th- the teacher smiled and the kids did too. Not a lot of smiling going on today. It's a serious environment. Everybody's looking at their watch, and there's no emotional, physical, and academic separation. It's all about uh, judgment. Uh, you know, kids don't exercise. You talk about they're not doing recess at school. They're sure not doing it at home. And then what does that do to your emotions? Because if I want somebody to smile on the planet Earth, it's still all I got to do to make a smile is smile at somebody. And I think that we don't even have smiles incorporated into the structure of education.
1: All right, Isaiah, I wrote in my book, Working with the 4D Students, a passage that says, our children deserve to have adults in front of them who smile at work, who look like they enjoy being there with our students. But I remember when I came into teaching back in 1999, one of the mentors told me, don't smile until December. So my goal based on that premise was to make sure every child in my classroom was miserable until December. What a horrible way to think. And if I'm not smiling and I'm not enjoying my work, do you think the students are enjoying what I'm giving them? Because they're like, this guy, does not not like what he's giving us. Why should we accept what he's giving us? Why should we do this? We have to change the whole mentality of this relationship between the school, the teachers inside the building, children coming to school. Listen to this. This is a crazy thing. We have compulsory attendance. We make students come to school. If they miss 10 days in a semester, we'll send them to truancy court. But we pay teachers to come, we give them seven sick days state, seven sick days uh, local, and we give them holidays and vacation time. But the person who is the school is all about, we have penalties in place for them. How can that be a place that I wanna go and enjoy?
0: Buddy, but buddy, before you go, let me say this, because uh, I'm going to come back to you. I'm, I didn't forget the question I asked while the panel is still open, but we're about to close it. Uh, let me go back to you, Dr. Larry Davis. Let the listeners know about your book, where they need to go to purchase your book, and, and why they should get your book today. <laughs> Talk about
1: it. Uh, my book is, the one, the one he's talking about is Working With Our 4D Students, Defiant, Difficult, Disrespectful, and Disruptive. And it's about beliefs, relationships, the attitude of adults, the culture that we build, and the environment and engagement that we prepare for our students to help them succeed. These these five things will do more for educating children than any punishment we can possibly give. You think about this. It's not where we pour our kids out of, it's what we pour them into that's gonna make them successful. If you take 100 different bottles of water, different flavors, different brands, it doesn't matter. And you put them all in an ice tray, in a freezer at 32 degrees, they're all going to turn the ice at the exact same time. We have to create that environment where our students will start to learn. I'm not saying every student's going to learn at the same level, at the same time, at the same rate. But if we set that expectation and we create that culture and we get rid of some of these adult attitudes, attitudes, some of these adults' beliefs, these, uh, these adults-factor things that interfere with student learning, they're going to be successful. They're going to be successful. And you can get my book at Amazon.com. Sorry about that.
0: And what's the title of the book again?
1: Working with our 4D students. Defiant, difficult, disrespectful, and disruptive. Now, since you opened the door, Dr. Drone, let me say this. I just released a book last Monday. It's called A, a Man... A father A husband It's a Christian book Based on the definition Of these roles In a man's Throughout a man's life As a what is, what is a man Defined by the Bible What is a father Defined by the Bible What is a husband Defined by the Bible Right And it's a fictional story But it's the journey Of a man Through these phases In his life
0: <laughs> That was perfect That was perfect Buddy Thornton So changing I'm coming to you now And I'm, You've written so many books yourself we're not gonna get into that right now (laughs) but the same question what is the role of teachers in preparing future generations that's a reflective thought but what's your thoughts
3: well first of all i think teachers are mislabeled i think teachers should become learn be charged to be learning environment facilitators what dr larry said was very accurate We need to create an environment where we invite students to learn and we don't allow them to just lollygag through the school year. They have targets. We can co-create some of those targets, especially when we know that the brighter students are going to succeed whether we help them or not. It's the bottom 60% that we have to really work to keep in line and, and motivate them to stay on target. But a teacher's job needs to be As a co-creator in a learning environment, because you do not teach children who do not want to learn, you can teach any child once they have a motivation to learn. That's a huge step, and a lot of schools do not take that huge step. Let me give you a a, a short story about a parent that I dealt with. She had to take her 12-year-old son to school, and I believe right now you're dealing with some 12-year-olds, Isaiah, so you'll know this one really well. The 12-year-old was having a little difficult time, didn't want to get out of the car, and so the mother assisted him getting out of the car, maybe a little more vigorously than we would like. But a teacher walked over to the car, separated the parent from the child, and asked the child directly to their face, do you want to press charges against your mother for abuse? As long as we have teachers who can even utter those words, we have a huge disconnect between the teacher who is supposed to be a pr- in local parentist and the community that it, they serve. They do, are, they do have the responsibility to, to have a learning environment where children learn. But when they create a chasm in a family by separating the children from their parents deliberately and blat- blatantly, that creates a huge problem. This parent ended up having to sue the school system, get the teacher fired, which did happen, but it took 11 months for the school system to admit that the teacher had created a problem. So there's all kinds of environmental issues we need to deal with. Teachers need to be on the side of the entire family. They need to look at what they are doing when they disrupt families. They need to look at what they do when they don't create positive learning environments. Teachers cannot succeed, and we will not have positive future generations if we don't solve the problem of getting teachers to understand that they are human development people before they're ever teachers.
0: That was so apropos. That was so apropos. Uh, Let me close the panel and and ask some questions. Let me go to... Mr. Carl first because you you talked about legalities Mr. Barry and and Buddy talked about those court cases that and those laws and the ratifications of those different uh, school laws that actually changed the course, changed the trajectory of the education system that we know of in in the United States and and there have been so many um, you know but the main two amendments I believe that Um, have been I I, I would say motioned against and in the court of law it's been the first amendment and the 14th amendment you got the 14th amendment those due processes that were due or maybe violated or the plaintiffs felt that was violated against them in in those first amendments which are the freedoms and and with that being said Mr. Carberry I want to ask you this question how important is it to provide students with safe learning choices. And what does it do for the student's mind, the student's mindset, the student's outlook? Not just in education, but in in life, mind, body, and and spirit, mind, body, and soul. What's your thoughts?
2: It's important, but the first thought is I've got to define faith environment because if you go and you look, I want to buy Dr. Uh, Davis's book because he said the magic word. We are worried about the legal system and we forgot about the laws of God. And so we if you look at how schools want to operate, if you go to, a christ-centered school uh, or a wholesale moral environment uh you're going to find that the people respect the space of each other they respect the differences they're careful not to embarrass or humiliate like the teacher tried to dip the parent and when the teacher did deal with something they have to stay calm but that is more of the way of the world or is that the way of the law of God, because you know we used to pray when we when opened up class too, didn't we, buddy? And we used to do some things that represented uh, wholeness and oneness and unity and all these good things. And now what we do is I just got to be able to control them. I, I got to be able to make things go the right way. And and when I did that program for the state of Texas. I was educated and to discover that uh, the adoption and foster care system is a pathway to prison because we take and we trauma take a traumatized kid that's being raised by unhealthy parents and we take those kids in, in a way in the law, take them away from those parents and put them into even deeper trauma. And then they send them 200 miles away, and they got two years before they graduate. And once they graduate, they get a suitcase, a handshake, and a wave with a smile saying good luck. They don't even take them back to the 200 miles they brought them from. And so we've got to look at what is the foundation of safety. What do you and how do you define safety? Yes, it's got to be safe. But far as I'm concerned, it needs to be wholesome and moral safety and not dictatorial.
0: Oh, wow. Listen, we, uh, you, you didn't crack this thing open. <laughs> Mr. Carberry, we got to open the panel back up really quick because based on what you just said, we need to know some things. We need to know what do we need to know? we We need to know at what point did we need to know what we need to know and then we and we gotta wrap it up with this. What do we do about it, or what should we do about it? The panel is open. What do we need to know? When do we need to know it, and what do we need to do about it as it relates to providing safe learning. Environments and choices for our our scholars. The panel's open Who wants to take that. I
3: have a can we remove yeah. Go ahead. Can we remove buddy. jud can we remove judging, blaming, and shaming out of the equation? Can we teach these kids universal positive regard from kindergarten on? Can we take the pecking order? Out of the equation, that might be a tall order because humans are habituated to the pecking order from, from thousands of years ago. We all want what's above us. We don't want what's below us. That's just natural. But can we remove blaming, shaming, and judging? Just because someone else's backstory or their environment or their socioeconomic status is different from ours, does that give us the right to put them in a position where they should feel less than. And that we can do if we insist that the teachers teach from that perspective, because it cuts across all religious faiths that we can remove judgment. You know, in the Bible, it does say, you know, judge not lest we be judged. And it's very important that we remember that we are supposed to uplift others, not knock them down. And that should be the one Christian example that we had back in the 50s and 60s when I was in school that is completely and totally absent today unless it's being aggressively and intentionally taught by teachers.
1: I'm going to go this route, but you're exactly right. We're talking about an unconditional love, right? But it's hard. Or I shouldn't say it's hard. It's not impossible to want that for our students and our, and our and our schools but we have so many adults coming into the school as teachers that have so much trauma. So they bring in their trauma in with children with trauma and that's just not playing out well. And that creates that unsafe environment. Now you think about, I love what, what, what Mr. Barry said, think about this. If we put students in a classroom and we put a door on that, on that classroom, and then we lock that door, and we have them inside. What's in between that classroom now and that classroom becoming a sale? The environment has to be mentally, physically, emotionally safe, not just what we conceive as safe because we constructed something that looks safe because we have a group of a set of plans or procedures. That's going to make us follow this guideline and safety. That doesn't mean that it's safe for every child. What's safe for me may not be safe for you or Buddy or Mr. Berry. We have to understand what is safety at its nature, at its root. And then, like Buddy said, you know, we got to get rid of these pecking orders. Because here's the funny thing. If you go to an AP class, our advanced placement classes, you're going to see 14 kids. If you go to our own level classes, you're going to see 31 kids. Statistics tell us. The advanced kids can have more students in the classroom because they're more more self promoted right more self motivated The classroom that deserves and needs the least amount of students are the own level classes, but we have that flip, so there's another safety issue I'm gonna stop
0: right there okay
1: listen well i want
3: fa- i want to back up what Larry said uh you know it has always been completely wrong for. The, the teachers and the administrators and even the parents to focus on the top 10% of students, the superstars who would succeed if they didn't even have to go to an environment like a campus, they would find a way it's not about them. It cannot ever be about them. But the other thing you have to realize is that all the other kids see that and all the other kids start to get demotivated when they realize they're going to be treated as less than because as a collective, they are treated as less than should we, should we not have the AP classes? Absolutely not. We need the AP classes because we need those kids to be basically unharnessed. We need to let them run with the wind. They are the future that we could just dream of, but we need the other 90% to believe that they can also get somewhere up that tree with those, ap students we really need to have a situation where we focus the majority of our teaching and our mindset on getting everybody to at playing field level environment and let those superstars just go they just gotta go and that's that's one of the things that we never see and plus you know you have weird things like in arizona where you have a superintendent of public education who was elected on a platform of, they would remove all social emotional learning from the school system. And that is exactly what's happened over the last six months since he was sworn in, is he has completely uh, destroyed all of the social emotional learning and focused on simply core skills. And what's gonna happen is there's going to be a large group of students who are going to come out of school that might be just a little more capable of doing poor things but they're going to have absolutely no social graces whatsoever they're not going to understand how to deal with other people and they're going to become pariahs in society over time that's what's going to happen
0: ooh, we, all right mr carberry do you have anything because i'm i'm oh i'm so ready right now come on do you have anything
2: well, the only thing I want to say is is that I don't believe that every kid deserves a trophy, and and what I'm getting at is is that we don't want to have and let those kids that Buddy's talking about. We don't want to let them go. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to be that guy that rose r- raised his hand on every question. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Call me, call me, and i learned to stop doing that because the kids resented me getting it right. But guess what? Now that that the kids don't even want to get it right. They don't want to be recognized as having the answers. And then what do we do? Uh, we have a, a race and everybody gets a trophy. And I don't think that that's a good way to do it either.
0: Listen, all you lifelong learners. Okay, is, oh, come it. on, come on, come talk about it.
2: I got to say this because you you actually
1: brought this up last week and I want want to chime in on it. And you mentioned it earlier in this conversation about whether the United States ranks with the other countries. Most countries already separate their children by sixth and seventh grade on which avenue they're going to take. Every student isn't forced into an academic setting. There are students who are going to go to the military. There are students who are going to go into apprenticeship. There are students who are going to go right to work. There are students who are going to agriculture and maintenance. They're not all forced to do the same thing for 14 years. And, those, and so when you, when you try to compare those students who have been hand selected academically to compete against every child in America, <laughs> you know, you're going to get an apple to an orange. You're going to get these, you know, disproportionate uh, percentages because Every kid in America is competing against a select kids from different countries. And that's where you see the big difference at. And also here in America, we love to go math and English. And the rest of the world is doing math and science.
0: Listen, I know you dropped the mic, but I need you to pick it back up because I'm about to ask you a question. But before I do, um, for all the, the lifelong learners that's listening in, I want you to write this down. I want you to write this down. I'm going to give you three to five seconds to, to get a pen or a pencil so you can write this down, what I'm about to give you. I want you to write this down. Number one, what would you do differently next time? I want you to think about that. Number two, what would help you to do it? Number three, what got in the way and number four, what challenges did you experience? I want you to write that down. Um, I tell you what, I'm gonna go to Buddy Thornton, Social Change Agent Pro. Uh, Buddy, I, I know you were in, in Las Vegas um, doing some conferences, and you got some stuff going on uh, in Oklahoma right now that you're working with. As, matter of fact, why don't you tell us what, what you got going on currently?
3: Well, my uh, fifth book is launching. My sixth book is about a third of the way finished being written. The two that I am the most proud of, though, are my book three and four, which is The Optimal Journey to Oneself. Uh, Book three was for students, uh, teens, and young adults. And book four was for the parents, teachers, and caregivers. And book three I wrote as a conversation between me and the kids. And I have received now a total of three awards for those two books. And I just really feel like those are meaningful books and you know uh as long as i get responses like that i'm going to keep pursuing what i'm doing the project in oklahoma is to retrench a abandoned high school and make it a a homeless retrenchment uh community where we're going to bring people literally out of the trees in the forest and give them a place to live and develop give them life skills give them job skills and then actually make them functional members of society and, you know, that kind of program needs to be extended to a lot of different communities. This, I'm hoping this is going to be a pilot community that is going to show the world how it's done. But, you know, it's just one step at a time. This week, I'm speaking at a conference with entrepreneurs, and my topic is how do you get your message out? How do you literally stand up and say, enough is enough, listen to my message, take it or leave it, but at least listen
0: to what I have to say. Thank you for that. Earlier on, you guys talked about a sense of community. Now this question I'm about to ask you now is gonna be targeted against a sense of, watch this, responsibility. With that being said, Buddy Thornton, we call you the Positive Social Change Agent Pro because you come up with ways of breaking down complex issues into bite-sized pieces like M&M's. And with that being said, why do teachers feel more responsible for student success than the parents? And how can we make education more intentional for those same parents? That's my question for you. Talk about it. Let's talk about pre-COVID,
3: let's talk about COVID, and let's talk about after COVID or at least having learned to live with COVID. Pre-COVID, parents only spent an average of 37 minutes of meaningful time with their children a day. Teachers were spending anywhere from five to six hours of meaningful time with the students. So just by sheer time referencing... Teachers had to be more meaningful to the students, especially once the students got to the level of being 12, 13, 14, they started to have an abstract thinking, and they started to try to find out where they belong in the world, and they weren't getting answers from parents in a 30-minute conversation once a day, so they had to get it from the role models who in front of them, which were the teachers. COVID flipped the script, and what it showed us was two things. Some parents were extremely adaptable and they could do a lot of things, and they did. But other parents were like, oh, my goodness, I am not a teacher. I don't know what I can do. All I can do is hope that I can get my child through this without them being too far behind. And so they, again, exacerbated the example that teachers are quantifiably more important to the students than the parents in the learning environment. That doesn't mean the overall environment, but in the learning environment. So yes, are teachers more responsible and should they feel uh, a sense of success when when uh, students perform well for them? I think that goes without saying. But how can you bring education and make parents believe that education is more intentional? You've got to make them Co-create the learning environment at home as well. You've got to make them responsible. Now, some school systems, if a student doesn't come to school, they punish the students. In other school systems, when the students don't come to school, like here in Arizona, in some school systems, they punish the parents. They want to know why your children are not attending school. You need to take time off of work and bring your child to school. So where does that, where's that? good or is it bad, I'm not the final arbiter of that, but that is something that has to happen. We need to make the parents at least aware that because they're responsible for the creating a child and making them into a developed, fully functional as adult, no matter what learning environment they go through, that's not on the teachers, that's on the parents. And if we start emphasizing that across society and holding parents responsible for at least engaging in the learning environment instead of just saying, It's not my problem, it's the teacher's problem then you know, we can win that battle. But it has to start with that mentality that we can co create the learning environment and force the parents to be part of that three legged stool.
0: Yeah, you know that was so good. You listen, my takeaway is winning the battle. Doctor Larry Davis, how do we make teachers win? How do we how do we support teachers winning? How do we make a win? How important is it for teachers to develop relationships with parents? Winning relationships. Talk about it.
1: You know, we started out talking about in loco parentis, right? In lieu of the parent. I think a better term would be in so kun, which means in partnership with. How about that? How Come about on. we ask every teacher to be in partnership with? the parent and that's telling the parent that in a partnership, it goes what two ways, both ways. When you look at referrals, teachers who write the most referrals are usually female teachers fresh out of college who are not parents who haven't been parents. And we're asking them to be the parent in lieu of the parent. We already set them up for failure. We have to think, I want to think about this. I said, what can I do to you to make you so upset that you won't go to your car, that you won't walk in your house? Nothing, because you make payments on that car. You make payments on the house. Well, parents, we pay taxes for that school building. There should be nothing that the school system can do to keep us from walking in that building. So how important is that parent-teacher relationship? It's incredible. But guess what? As we build these mega schools, we build these mega, these mega hallways and we move teachers further away back from parents. Teachers, co- teachers complain, I only got eight parents here on, on parent-teacher conference night. Guess what? I made every one of my teachers call every parent before the first day of school. So that first initial contact with that parent was positive. Hi, I'm Larry Davis. I'm going to be your, I'm going to be uh, Johnny's uh, math teacher. Hi, I'm Larry Davis. I'm going to be Samantha's English teacher. The first time the parent heard from the teacher is positive. But the way we do it now, we call home when they have a missing assignment. We call home when they're a discipline problem. So I tell teachers this, if we're going to have a parent-teacher conference, we're going to keep it in the bag. We're not going to make it personal. It's going to be about behavior, attendance, or grades. If it's not, I need you to call in that parent and tell them what a great job they're doing. And when they wrote letters home, it says, I saw Mr. Mr. Davis, I'm your child's, I'm Larry's teacher, and I wanna to talk to you about his success in my classes in jeopardy, because he hasn't done some things. Not that he's failing, so we have to have positive communication home to the teacher, I mean home to the parent, because if the first thing the parent gets is something negative, we've already set up an adversarial environment. Now everybody's posturing for who's in charge, who's gonna get the last word, Who's going to win this debate? And who loses? The child. So how important is it? I, can't even, I couldn't even possibly document how important it is. Why is it taking place? Because the way we set our schools up is to remove the parent. We've removed the parent from our education system. So teachers don't even feel like they have to contact parents anymore. Because we put so much on their plate. When do they have time? We, they don't have time to contact parents. And when a teacher tells you, I don't have time, That teacher is asking for help. I think there's a lot of things we can do to improve the teacher-parent relationship, and we know if we improve that, we're gonna improve student learning. We're gonna close that achievement gap. We're gonna do a lot of things to help our child succeed, but it starts with that partnership with the parent, not in lieu of the parent.
0: That was explosive. Listen, I'm gonna give you three to five seconds to reflect over this whole conversation this whole episode tonight. All right. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. What are the takeaways? Who wants to go first?
3: I'll jump in because I, I, want to hear, I really want to hear what Carl and Larry say, because, you know, uh, I'm a, a coach and I'm a parent coach and I deal mostly with the parents, not the kids. Although I'm, I am empathetic with the kids. And statistically, 90% of the problems that we find between the parents and the teens is the parent's problem, not the teen's problem. So Larry is absolutely correct. If we can't find a way to create a an absolute universal co-creation environment in schools that parents feel obligated intrinsically obligated, that they want to be there, not avoid, but want to walk through those doors, we're going to continue to have a failing environment. And it's, who's going to have the answer? Uh, I don't know. I search for it every day. And I know Larry searches for it every day. This is, we're parents. I'm a a great-grandfather. I don't want my great-grandchildren going to school and not having the benefit of a quality education because the system is broken. So I search every day and I will continue to search until the day God takes me from this earth. That's what I have to add.
1: Here's my takeaway. Buddy said something about if we made all these politicians, children go to public schools, we would have a much better public school system. My whole goal is why would I open up a school that I wouldn't send my child to? Why would I keep a school open that I wouldn't want my child attending? Right? We have to create that partnership between the school, the teacher, and the, the teacher and the parent. That's important. But the school and the community is equally as important. The family and the school is equally as important. My takeaway is this I think everybody on this call has a heart for children. Again, you know, my thing is education needs to champion, and our children deserve one. And it's easier now that I'm looking out from outside in that I can see and do things that I couldn't do inside the system. Dr. Drone, you're in that classroom every day. And it breaks your heart when that classroom represents not just classroom walls, but walls that keep you from doing some things, you know, would help children. We educate the creativity out of our children and we legislate the love of teaching out of our teachers. That's my
2: takeaway. Larry, buddy, Isaiah and Carl, Michael Jackson said it like this, the man in the mirror. And what I'm getting at, we can go to all of these utopian and mega changes, but the truth of the matter is I heard a guy speak about how you change cultures. And he said, you change cultures, one person, one family at a time, starting with your own. And one of the things that I tell people that in my church that we don't do is we don't take our heads out of the sand. We don't want to watch Fox or CNN because the way they present it is not good and the news is depressing. But if we don't take a look at the news, both sides, two sides to every story, we don't look at both sides to every story and then make the changes ourselves so that we lead by example, it ain't going to change. And so it's incumbent on us as individuals to do our part on being the person we think we need. Impact of Educational
0: Leadership podcast. Facebook.